Well, good morning. It's great to see you all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm part of our preaching team. Uh, my family and I were recently going through some old pictures. You know those, anybody remember photo albums? Like the kind that actually were in print? You know, you, you would used to print your you know, best pictures, and we were going through those. And it's crazy when you look back a decade or two or three, and you start looking at those pictures, and you, you go, what was I wearing? <laughs> I mean, and then what was going on with my hair? Like... Like, I thought I looked so cool, and I thought I looked so great. What in the world was happening? And, and the thing that's absolutely nuts about that is that uh, you'll look back on the clothes you're wearing now and think, what was I wearing, right? Like, like that whole thing never changes. Like, you, you know, I, I guess some of us just decide, hey, this is what I'm going with, right? And you just kind of keep the 80s hair. As long as you're going to live, you're going to stay there. But most of us were changing constantly, and yet the styles and the fashions are changing constantly. Some of the things come back, right? You live long enough and some stuff comes back. It's been wild watching college baseball to see mullets and mustaches come back, right? I, that's been kind of fun. And then for the ladies, I mean, I like this trend that the Birkenstocks and the overalls are back. I loved the Birkenstock overall look, ladies, in the 90s. That was a good one. And it is back. Actually, the first article of clothing I ever bought for Molly uh, when we were dating was a pair of overalls. <laughs> Because I just thought, oh man, she looked so good in overalls, and she did. And uh, so I'm glad that trend's back. Um, other trends have mercifully passed away, like Zubas. Anybody remember Zubas pants? The Zubas pants, this was a big crazy. These are the all pro quarterbacks of the 90s wearing Zubas, right? And when I was a kid, I just, oh man, I just, I would die for a pair of Zubas. And now Zubas are dead. They are gone. They have passed away. And that passed away is, is one of the ideas that, that brackets this passage today. If you have your Bible, look at chapter 2, verse 8. It says the darkness is passing away. We're supposed to love a certain way because if we don't love, we're in the darkness and the darkness is passing away. And then if you look at chapter 2, verse 17, it says the world is passing away along with its desires. That's why we're not to love the world. So uh, some things pass away. They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. Some things come back, but a lot just goes away. Other things, by the way, last forever, like, like the little black dress. And the little black dress, that thing ain't going out of style, right? Audrey Hepburn wore the little black dress a long time ago, and that thing is still going. So, so here's the thing. God is basically saying, I want you to prioritize what lasts. I want you to love what lasts. And so here's the thing. Rather than loving Zubas, love the little black dress, Love the thing that's going to last. Love the thing that's going to go. So here's the big idea uh, today is that in a dark world that is passing away, love what lasts. A lot of times we'll talk about love that lasts. Today we're talking about love what lasts. Let's invest ourselves. Let's give ourselves away. Let's sacrifice for something that's going to last. That's what we're doing. So this is part four of our study in the uh, book of 1 John. This book was written by the Apostle John. John describes himself in the Gospel of John as the disciple who Jesus loved. They had a close relationship. John was a teenager probably during the life of Jesus. Now a lot of time has passed. He's an older man. Lots of scholars actually suggest that perhaps at the time of writing this, John might be the last apostle standing. That all the other ones have died for their faith. All the other ones have been martyred. But John is there and he's, he's doing a lot of writing at this time. He's trying to reflect on what he's been up to. And so this letter, which some ways feels a little bit like a sermon, is written to a, a church of people who are discouraged and they're despairing and they're even deconstructing. They're wondering, man, this life is so hard and I thought the promises of God were going to make it easier and it's not easier. Is this worth it? 
They're looking at all these different competing narratives about what's true and going, well, can anything be trusted? And so they're doubting and they're discouraged and they're despairing and they're deconstructing. And John's writing this letter to try to encourage them to hold on, to hang in there. Jesus is worth it is what he's saying. Now, one factor, and this is true back then, this is true now, that, that contributes to people deconstructing and doubting their faith, one of the things that contributes to that is when Christians love the wrong thing. Right, when Christians say something's really important but they live in a totally different way, like that makes a lot of people go, is this thing real? Can this thing be trusted? What, what is this thing even about? We fall into this as followers of Jesus, where we start loving the wrong things. We, we say that we believe it's better to, to give than receive, but we kill ourselves to amass and accumulate wealth for ourselves. We say that love is the greatest command, but we bite and devour each other. We say that we believe that God's vision for sex is best, but we spend hours every week using pornography. We say that Jesus is the ultimate king. And then we obsess over American politicians. Friends, we, we have to love what lasts. We've got to fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on his people. And move from loving all these other distracting things to loving him to focusing on him, to going after him. The, the word love, key in the idea of love is the idea of sacrifice. That when you love something, you sacrifice for it. You make a willing sacrifice. You choose to sacrifice for the things you love. You sacrifice your time, your money, your energy, your attention, your emotion, your care, your concern. You sacrifice for what and who you love. That's what love is. So, so what are you, what are we gonna love? What are we gonna sacrifice for? Let's sacrifice and love for what lasts. That's what we're gonna to try to do today. So pray with me and we'll look at this. Father, uh, we come, we ask you to help us to love what lasts. We pray that you would redirect our attention and our focus. Give us a reset so that we could love what you love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's how this passage works. It works a little bit, I'm gonna call it a love sandwich. And you can see this actually, if you just look at the formatting of the text, if you have your Bible, you can look at it. Uh, there's, a, there's a solid paragraph of verses seven to 11. That's like the top piece of bread. Then in the middle is verses 12 to 14, and you see it, it starts to look like poetry, even just the way it's formatted there in your Bible. That's like the meat of the sandwich. And then you have another paragraph, verses 15 to 17, that's like the bottom part of the sandwich. Uh, that's another solid thing. So the, we're gonna look at this love sandwich. We're gonna look at the first piece of bread, the second piece of bread, we'll go back to the middle. So here's how I'm describing this, is we're gonna look at what to love, what not to love, and how to redirect your love. What to love, what not to love, how to redirect your love. So first, what to love. This is in verses seven and eight. He says, beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He's used this word over and over, commandment. I'm giving you a commandment, a commandment. Was well, it old, is it new? First of all, let's say, well, what is it? What is this commandment? Well, this commandment is clearly spoken in chapter three, verse 23. 
John alludes to it throughout the book, but in 3.23, he really says, here's what it is. Here's what it says. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. That's his commandment. Believe in the name of his son, love the Lord, and love one another. So in verses seven and eight, back in chapter two, he's going, hey, you know, this really isn't actually a new commandment. It's kind of an old one. Right, Deuteronomy 5, Leviticus 19, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. So he's going, on one hand, this isn't really new. On the other hand, it is kind of new because Jesus took it to a whole nother level. Uh, when Jesus says in John 13, 34, you know, as I have loved you, now you love one another. That's like just going whole next level, right? That's not just saying love your neighbor as yourself. It's saying love your neighbor like I've loved you, right? This is like I, I've, I've always loved in the summer just the smell of cooking hamburgers. Isn't that great when you go out in the afternoon and you smell burgers, right? I love cooking burgers, um, you know, and so making good burgers, that's nothing really all that new. But then last summer, I got a, I got a, a, a Blackstone and now I'm making smash burgers. And that's a whole nother level, friends. I mean, that is next level. That's what's going on. He's going, hey, you've, this commandment, it's not, it's not really that new, but, but Jesus took it to smash burger level, right? That's what's going on. This is serious. Uh, this is a big deal. Love God, love one another. That's the command. So that's what we're to love. We're to love God, love one another. And then he continues, verse nine. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Verse 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Here's the idea. You cannot be enlightened and unloving. You can't say, well, I got to figure it out. I know the truth. I know God. I, I have access to spiritual reality. I have access to everything that's true and then be unloving. That doesn't work in God's economy. Now, now listen, that totally works with the way the world is. Absolutely in the world. Here's the deal. If you have enlightenment, if you have the truth, if you have insight, you have to hate people who don't have it or who resist it. Right, you see this like crazy right now in right, one of these huge cultural flashpoint issues right now, the whole LGBTQ conversation. Right, you look at the irreligious left who feel like we have enlightenment. We've moved past gender binaries. We've moved past all that sort of stuff. And we know that love is love. And we know that you can just be whoever you are. Just look inside, find who you are. Like, they have a sense of we have found the truth. We're enlightened. But are they compassionate toward people who don't have that perspective? No, they hate them. You've never met someone meaner than a trans activist. These people are violent and these people are mean and these people are hateful, why? Because in the world, if you're enlightened, you have to hate the other side. Now, take the same issue and go to the non-religious right. Because they think, well, we're enlightened. We know how bodies work. And we watch Matt Walsh's documentary and we pay attention to Ben Shapiro's podcast, and we know how this goes. We know that you are, you know, how you're born. And do they go, well, you know what? These poor people on their side, they just don't understand. No, it's, we hate them. They're evil. They're horrible. You can't have any kindness or compassion. It is just full-on war all the time. Why? Because in the world, without Christ, 
If you're enlightened, you have to hate the other side. But now here we are as Christians who are going, absolutely, we believe that God makes people male and female, that he defines that, that gender is not some fluid thing that you decide, but it's determined on the basis of your biological sex. We believe that. And we believe that God has good priorities and parameters for sexuality, that it was a good gift of God meant to allow us to thrive in the context of a relationship of marriage between one man and one woman, that it is good there and that it is blessed there and that anything outside of that is a problem. That's where we are. And... And we look to Jesus who said, love your enemies. Listen, own the libs is an irreligious idea. Love your enemies is a Jesus idea. You cannot be enlightened and unloving. And look at the word he uses a couple times is hate. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother, still in darkness. Verse 11, whoever hates his brother. Now here's the thing. I have not met a Christian yet who has confessed to me that they believe they struggle with hate. None of us do. We go, I, well, <laughs> I, I don't hate anybody. I just strongly dislike some people. I don't, but I don't hate them. I don't hate them. I don't hate anybody. I just, if I, if I have anything to do with them, I don't want anything to do with them. But I don't hate them. Okay, well, I just did you a favor, and I looked up the New Oxford American Dictionary for the word hate. Here's what it says, definition of hate. To feel intense or passionate dislike for someone. <laughs> Have a strong aversion to. If you can't say amen, you better say ouch. <laughs> see, see, the scripture is not just a window to look out to critique the world but it's actually a mirror to hold up to ourselves and to have God seek and examine our hearts. And when he does that, what we find is we actually do hate some people. We actually do have strong dislike, passionate, intense disregard, strong aversion for different people. And we need to repent from that because we need to love what God loves. And what does God say? Believe in Jesus, love one another. So what is love? Well, we said earlier that, that love is something you're going to sacrifice for. Okay, well, what is Christian love then? Here's the definition we use. We got this from Paul Tripp. Christian love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand payback or that the person is deserving. That's the definition of Christian love. Love is a willing self-sacrifice. It's something you choose to do, you don't have to do, you want to do, you lay yourself down. It's a willing self-sacrifice for the good of someone else, by the way, not necessarily for the enjoyment of someone else for the good of someone else. They might not always like it, but you're gonna willingly self-sacrifice for their good, even when they aren't deserving and can't pay you back. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds exactly how Jesus loved us. He willingly self-sacrificed for our good when we couldn't pay him back and we weren't deserving. That's Christian love. So what to love? Love God, love people, love this intense self-sacrificial way. We have to repent of our hatred. That's what we're to love. So that's the first part of the sandwich. The second part of the sandwich is what not to love. So again, here we jump down to verses 15 to 17. And again, we're commanded about what not to love. Look at what it says in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father 
is not in him. That's an interesting thing, by the way. Just think about that. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is like saying it's one or the other. You gotta choose, right? This is like a dog who picks up a tennis ball and then sees a shinier, better tennis ball and says, let me try to pick that up too. And one's gonna fall out. You can't hold two of them. That's what he's saying. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Five times the word world is used here. It does not refer to world as in the people of the world because we know God loves them. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. God loves the people of the world. It's not that. Uh, Here, it's not a reference to the created world, though sometimes that Greek word means that. Here, it's talking about the system of the world, the world's values, the world's structures, the world's priorities, the world's uh, sense of here's what matters most. One theologian said it this way, that, that the world here is the life of human society as organized under the power of evil. So, people are to be loved, that's John 3, 16. The system of the world is to be rejected. Verse 15 here, do not love the world. And again, the key idea here is love. Love is a willing sacrifice. So he's saying, don't lay yourself down for the pleasures of this world. Don't lay yourself down for, verse 16, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Don't willingly sacrifice. This is what so many of us do. We live for the world. We live for the world of our career and we sacrifice our children. We live for the world of advancement and we sacrifice our health. We live for the world of our children's opportunities and we sacrifice our commitment to faith. We live for the world and so we make all kinds of sacrifices. He's saying, no, 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 don't do that. And don't be asking, what will gratify me now? That's the, that's the question of the world. That's the question that everyone is spending billions of dollars to get you to ask. What will gratify me now? That's, a, that's the wrong question. That's not a question for Christians. If you're asking that question, beware. It's crowding out the love you have for God. Now, loving the world, sometimes that's big stuff. We talk here a lot about the the dangers of sex and money and power. Bible over and over, I mean, it's just, it's the same song on repeat, sex, money, power, sex, money, power, sex, money, power. These things are constantly derailing the people of God. We know what God says about sex. We deviate from it. It ruins us. We know that money is a big deal because it's the, the love of it is this root of all kinds of evil because it's a, it's a terrible replacement for God. If you look to money to find your security and to find your freedom and to find your comfort, to find your hope for the future, to find your ease, it, like you'll find it there for a while, but it won't last. And power, it's so seductive because we want to be in control. We want to be like God. So maybe it's those kind of big things like sex, money, power, but sometimes it, this love of the world can be even more subtle. I, I love this quote by John Piper. I've shared this with you before. Here's what he says. He says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. The most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. And this can be real hard. 
Because you go like, ah, oh, man, I, there's all kinds of things in the world I love. I, like, I, I love the smell of fresh cut grass and I love the taste of lightly roasted espresso. Not dark roasted, but we can debate about that, right? And I, and I love walking through Costco and smelling the tires. Oh, that's a great smell. Like, that's just incredible. You know, and I, and I love Jerry Seinfeld's comedy. And I love the sound of a, of a bat really connecting with a baseball and knocking it out of the park. I got, right, there's a lot in the world to love. And, and get this, the Bible says every good and perfect gift is from above. And it says that God has lots of good gifts that are meant to be enjoyed. So it, it doesn't mean you, you have to not enjoy any of the physical things in the world, but it's saying, hey, there's this reality that the world system is seductive and it can get its claws in you and you have to watch out. Why? Why, why is it so dangerous? Well, here's the first reason. It's incompatible with loving God. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's saying you can't love God and the world in the same way. You can't lay yourself down self-sacrificially for the good of others while you are sacrificing others to fill yourself up on the world. You can't do it. This just doesn't work. And then verse 16, for all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And, and let, let's actually go back and look and see this, th that combination, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, that is at the root of humanity's very first sin. Look at what it says in Genesis 3 about Eve. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. She saw, she delighted, she desired, she took. And, and, and friends, that pattern repeats over and over in the scriptures. At one point in the book of Joshua, the people of Israel, after totally routing one army, they end up losing to an army they should have totally wiped out. And they go, what happened? Well, what happened was God had told them, hey, don't keep any of this plunder for yourself. But one person had, Achan had. He'd buried some of the treasure in his tent. And so they go on a search to figure out who, hit, who, who, who broke this rule, who broke this law. And it turned out it was Achan. And when Achan explains himself, look at what he says in Joshua 7. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them. I desired them and took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. I saw, I coveted, I took. We tragically see the same thing with King David when he should be out at battle. Instead, he's up on the roof and it says, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. So David sent messengers and took her. Saw, desired, took. It's incompatible with love for God. Instead, we see the beauty of God's creation and we worship him for it. We don't, we don't seek to seize it. 
We don't lust after it. We don't crave that we've got to be in control of it to dominate it. No, no, no. We see the good things of the world and we rejoice in God's goodness and we thank him for it and we enjoy it, but we don't take. We don't desire. We don't seize. Because if you have that approach, here's what he's saying. It is incompatible with loving God. But it's also, get this, it's incomparable with eternity. Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away. This system is passing away. By the way, creation is going to be made new. Creation's not going to be junked. God doesn't make junk and God doesn't junk what he makes. But the world system is passing away. So, so to love the world, to sacrifice the world is to, is to commit yourself to something that's incomparable with eternity. Now, imagine I came to you and I said, all right, um, I'm going to give you $10 million. What would you do with it? First of all, you'd go, liar. You, I know you don't have $10 million. And you would be correct. But imagine I came to you. I said, hey, what, what would you do with $10 million? You go, oh, man. I'd buy this house and I'd, I'd, give, I'd give some to the church. Uh, and I'd, you know, and I'd invest in this thing for my kids and I'd, what would you do with $10 million? Now, what if I said, what would you do with $10 million of Confederate money? You'd say, well, I'd hope I found a trash can big enough to dump it all in, right? Because Confederate money, right? You know the Confederacy printed money. I imagine they printed over $10 million of it. And you know how much it's worth now? Zip. Zip. Right? You might go, well, let me keep one just because it's an interesting historical item. But like the, the Confederacy, praise God, is in the dustbin of history. It did not survive. It did not last. And its money is worthless. And this is what he's saying. If you're living for the world, if you're sacrificing to get the world, and that's it, and you don't have God, you're, you're spending and investing and living for Confederate money. And it's going to be worthless. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 17 in the message. He says, the world and all it's wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. So what to love, love God, love people. What not to love, don't love the world, don't love the system of the world. Third, how do you redirect it? How do we make that shift? How, how to redirect your love? This is where we got to go to the meat of verses 12 and 14, right? If, if the goal is I'm trying to move from a love of the world to a love for God, how do I do that? What gets me there, right? Because this world is enticing and it's pleasurable and it's, it's amazing sometimes. Like, gosh, that's a big shift. How do I make that kind of shift? How do I have my heart reset? Because here's the thing, especially for those of you who are followers of Jesus, you, you hear what I'm saying and, and it's resonating with you. And you're like, oh yes, that's right. I know I don't live for money and I don't know I don't live for stuff and I know I don't live for, for just gratification right now, but like, yes, I wanna live for the Lord. Like that's where you are. But there's this thing over time, we just kind of end up drifting into this reality of we love the world. So what's gonna reset us? It's kind of like um, I grew up like some of you did in the late 1900s. And uh, <laughs> back in those days, um, if we wanted to play video games, you played it on a Nintendo. And there was a cartridge you'd put in there. And uh, 
And that Nintendo had a reset button, but sometimes you'd be playing a game and it would get stuck, right? Or it wouldn't load and you'd hit the reset button and even that wouldn't do it. And so, uh, and so you know what you had to do? You had to take the cartridge out. Some of you remember this. You'd take that cartridge out and what would you do? <sighs> you'd blow in the cartridge. And then like, amazing, you'd put it in and it worked. How did that happen? <sighs> now, now here's the reality. For you and I, over time, even if we go, yes, yes, I agree with this. Yes, I want to love God. I want to love people. I don't want to be held captive to the world. Over time, the dust of the world gets into our system and it gets into our heart. And the only thing that's going to redirect it and reset it is that the Holy Spirit has to come in and blow the wind of the Spirit with the great promises of God to say, hey, hey, remember who you are. Live for who you truly are. That's what verses 12 to 14 are. They're this Holy Spirit wind. This is who you are. So what he does is he addresses three groups of people, children, fathers, young men. Uh, because he uses the phrase children throughout the whole letter, like chapter two, verse one, he begins, my little children. This is just how he addresses these folks. Uh, the way I interpret this is that the, the things he says to the little children are what he's saying to everybody. But then he actually tailors his message even more to people who are more experienced in the faith, who he calls fathers. We could also say it's fathers and mothers. Uh, it's not especially uh, gender specific here. And then he also says, I'm writing to you young men. So those, those of you who are younger in life, men and women. And he's going to say, hey, here's some stuff that's true for all of you who are Christians. Here's some stuff, especially for those of you who are more experienced and those of you who are right in the thick of the battle. And this is the Holy Spirit's reset. Look at what he says. First, the little children, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Then he says at the end of verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Listen, what he's trying to remind you is, in Christ, your sins are forgiven. You're not condemned. You're not orphaned. You're not alone. Though you have loved the world and the things in the world, Jesus Christ died for that sin and he's made you new and he's forgiven you and he's given you a new father. He's welcomed you into his family. That is who you truly are. That's the good news. And notice, I, I just, I can't pass over the specifics of this sentence in verse 12. Because your sins are forgiven, why? Because your sins are forgiven because you got your act together? No. Because you got really moral? No. Because you had a lot of faith? No. Because you promised you'd never do it again? No. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Because God knew that it would bring him glory to save your sin and welcome you into his family and show the riches of his kindness and glory and grace in Christ. It's for his name's sake. So how do you begin to be reset by the Holy Spirit? You remember, oh yeah, that's who I am. I'm a forgiven child of God. And now there's these promises for different stages of, and maybe it's stage of life, maybe it's just stage of Christian life. Not exactly sure. But here's what he says to the fathers and the mothers, those who are more experienced, those who have more life under their belt. It's interesting, he says almost the exact same wording. Look at verse 13. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. Verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. What's he trying to say? He's saying, hey, some of you, you have enough life under your belt 
and you've seen the faithfulness of God and you've experienced the forgiveness of sin and you've experienced relationship with God and the sweetness of it, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And I just wanna remind you, fathers, mothers, those of you who are more experienced in the faith, to lean into what you know. You have known him who is from the beginning. You, one commentator said it this way, these people are consciously and currently living in eternity. They're living with the eternal God, him who was from the beginning. And they're saying, hey, this isn't like you die and then you go be with God. No, you're with God now. Remember that that's who you are. Lean into that reality. That's how you keep loving. That's how you persevere. That's how you don't cave into the world. And then he speaks to the young men and the young women. Look at what he says there in the middle of verse 13. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Then the end of verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. To the younger folks, people in the middle of it, notice how contested it all feels. It feels like a battle. It feels like a fight. You've overcome the evil one. You're strong. The word of God abides. You've overcome the evil one. Why does he write like that? Because here's the deal. When you're in your 20s and 30s and 40s, it's a battle. Those of you in your 20s, you know it. life is about survival. Can you make it in this adult world? That's what you're trying to figure out. In your 30s, you're trying to go, who am I? What does it mean to be successful? I'm gonna strive after that. In your 40s, life is just struggle. You have enough kids to need a lot of money, but not enough money. And you're running around and you're busy and you're tired and you're fatigued. You're going, is, this, is it always gonna be this hard? It's battle. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, you're strong. You have what it takes as you let the word of God abide in you. And in Christ, you have victory. You have overcome. You have won the battle. So remember that. You are not destined to just fall into the patterns of the world like everybody else. No, no, no. You're a child of the Father. You're the bride of the Son. You're the home of the Holy Spirit. Live like it. Remember that's who you are. And this gospel wind, resets you and says, oh yeah, that's how I'm gonna live. What do we love? We love God and we love people because that's what lasts. What don't we love? Well, the things of the world. It's Confederate money. It's just gonna fade away. How do we redirect our hearts? We let the promises of the spirit, the promises of the gospel wash and cleanse and renew and redirect us. Let's pray. God, you're so faithful. And uh, God, I just thank you so much for those promises in verses 12 to 14. God, I pray that we would lean in to the reality of our forgiveness, that we would lean in to the truth of our union with you. God, for those who are in the battle, help them keep fighting. For those who have a lot of life and maturity under their belt, help them to remember how faithful you've been. And God, help us to love what lasts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Luke. Yeah.